Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 1 through 14. It says, And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, and say, What was your mother, a lioness? Among lions she crouched, in the midst of young lions she reared her cubs. And she brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him, and he was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he prowled among the lions, and he became a young lion. And he learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities, and the land was appalled, and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken into their pit. With hooks they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water and fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers, scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches, but the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit and they were stripped off and, and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land and fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Now, as you've heard me teach before, and I want to reiterate, the Bible loves to use symbolic language. But every time the Bible uses symbolic language, it will explain to you what it is. God has never left the interpretation up to us to figure out what we think it means. Unfortunately, a lot of people take things in the Bible and they say, well, I think this represents this, or I think this means that. No, as you've heard me teach all the way through, the Bible in, will in one of two ways explain the symbolic language. Many times it will tell you right away, like for example, in Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus and in his hand are seven stars and he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. And the scripture then goes on and tells you the seven lampstands are the seven churches the stars are the messengers to the churches. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. The very next verse says, By this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him were later to receive. All the way through Scripture, we see it over and over that the Bible explains when its symbolic language is used right away what it symbolizes. At the same time, there are other passages like this where the information has already been given so that when God uses this symbolic language, you have to have already known what has been said prior to it to be able to understand this. God would never give a message and then have, have you just guessing as to what it means. And as you remember when we looked at earlier, why does he speak in parables? We took back to when Jesus was teaching his disciples and he's designed it so that if you're hungry and you're wanting to search and you're wanting to know the answer and you humble yourself and say, Lord, teach me what this means, he'll do that. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break down this lament. We're going to take our whole time to break this down because everything we need is here. And as you're about to see, we're going to have a little bit of fun doing an actual Bible study, wrestling with some of these issues that are here. So this lament is a lament for the princes or the kings of Israel. You see that some of your Bibles uh, and you have a heading that says a lament for the princes of Israel. Uh, namely, or specifically, though, the two princes or kings that they're lamenting in this story here, in this lament, are Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. Now you say, well, how do we get that? That's what tonight's whole study is about. All right. All right. Now Israel, the nation of Israel is the lioness and her cubs are her kings. The young lions that it talks about that she raised her cubs among the young lions. That's also referring to the other kings of the nations all around them. All right. Now the first cub of the lioness in verses three and four is Jehoahaz who reigned in 609 BC, but he only ruled for about, let me lower my microphone here, he only reigned for about three months before being removed by Egypt's pharaoh, Necho. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4 here, uh, in, again in our passage. And she, the lioness, Israel, brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. Now, the reason why we know that this is Jehoahaz 
is because he's the king that, according to the nation of Israel's history, which was taken by Pharaoh Necho to Egypt. Well, but don't take my word for it. Go back with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 31 through 35. It says, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. By the way, keep in mind how long he reigned as king in Jerusalem. How long did he reign? That's very important for later on. Keep that in mind. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So we see that there was a king in Israel in, in the city of Jerusalem, in the, in, that's in the tribe of Judah, or sorry, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, whose name was Jehoahaz. You're going to find out later on another name for him in the Bible is Shalom was another name he had. Jehoahaz was not a great king, and God only allowed him to reign in Jerusalem for three years, and Pharaoh Necho came and took him captive, and he, then Pharaoh Necho put in charge over Israel, or the southern kingdom of Judah, Eliakim, but he changed his name to Jehoiakim. That's going to be important later on as well. So Jehoiakim was the king after Jehoahaz, but Jehoiakim was under the control of Pharaoh Necho, and Pharaoh Necho was charging a tax, if you will, on Israel to pay toward, toward Egypt. So what did Jehoiakim do? He taxed the people so that he would collect that money and then give that money to, to Pharaoh. All right? But I also want you to understand, and you're going to see a little bit later tonight how this is important. You need to find out everything you can that the Scripture says about a certain individual or, or an episode to get a fuller understanding of what the whole of Scripture says. And so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm not going to have us just read about this in 2 Kings. Let's also go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles also gives an account of Jehoahaz. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 4. It says, The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. All right. So again, same account. So after Jehoahaz was taken captive by Pharaoh Necho, who was left in charge over Israel? Jehoiakim. All right. Now, for your sake, and it'll become more clear as we go a little further, after Jehoiakim came Jehoiachin. All right. Jehoiakim was a king for a period of time, I think around 11 years. And then Jehoiachin became king after him. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 19. We already read in verses 3 and 4 how there was lament for that young lion of Israel. That young lion was only king, as we know, for about three months. And he was brought with hooks to the land of Egypt. That was Jehoahaz. But now in verses 5 and, uh, through 9, the next cub to be referred to here in verses 5 through 9 is Jehoiachin. And I'm going to show you why scripturally it's Jehoiachin and not Jehoiakim. All right. By the way, Jehoiachin, as you're going to see, reigned only three months as well. And he was taken into captivity to Babylon in 597 B.C. If you remember at the beginning of our study of Ezekiel, it was in 597, the second wave that Nebuchadnezzar came to attack Israel. The first wave in 609, what did he do? He took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then he came back again in 597 and took Jehoiachin, as you're about to see, and also 10,000 captives and brought them to Babylon and Ezekiel was one of the captives along with his wife who were taken at that time. Jeremiah is left in Jerusalem. He continues to prophesy. 
So we have Jehoahaz taken to Egypt, Jehoiakim, which became king after him, but then after Jehoiakim was Jehoiachin. And this lament here in the next verses is for Jehoiachin, not Jehoiakim. All right. So look at verses 5 through 9 again in Ezekiel 19. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost. This is Israel, the lioness, looking for that cub that was taken to Egypt. She took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities, and the land was appalled, and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken into their pit. With hooks they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. All right. So this king was taken into captivity to Babylon. All right. But don't take my word for it. Let's go back and take a look. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. Again, when we see this lament, everything you need to interpret the lament has already been given to us in the scriptures. I was teaching the men, men in motion today, the passage in Romans chapter 10 where uh, Paul's writing and he says, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And we for years said, well, if we don't tell them, they may never hear. That's not what Paul's saying. He's actually laying it out. He said, how can they believe on one they've never heard? How can they hear about this person unless someone preaches to them? And how can someone preach to them unless they've been sent? In other words, God's saying through Paul, God would never expect you to believe something he hadn't already told you. And then he, of course, goes on right after that and says, have they not heard? Of course they have. His word has gone out into all the earth. Romans 10 is not saying, if you don't tell them, they may never hear. How can they hear unless someone preaches? What he's saying is, he's been preaching. He wouldn't expect you to hear something or believe in something you haven't heard. And that's the whole point. And then he answers his own question. Have they heard? Of course they've heard. His word's gone out into all the earth. So in the same way, as we look at the lament, we shouldn't sit there and go, well, this is confusing because we don't have enough information. God would not give you something without enough information to be able to understand it. He wouldn't leave it to you to kind of figure out what you think it means. The scriptures have everything we need. So let's go back to 2 Kings 24, look at verses 8 through 17. Jehoiachin now was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. By the way, that's the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, not Jehoiachin's, because remember, he only reigned three months. In the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon the king of Israel had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen, and the metal workers, 1,000 of them all strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, so after Jehoiachin's taken away to Babylon, he puts Zedekiah as the king, but Zedekiah is not a descendant of Jehoiachin. That's going to be important later on. He's actually an uncle of Jehoiachin. All right, but again, don't just look at this one account. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, look at verses 9 through 10. Jehoi chapter, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 9. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord in the spring of the year. King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord, and he made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah in Jerusalem. So now... Is it his brother or is it his uncle? Very good. It's his uncle. The term brother means relative. Okay? You Baptists have been doing that for years. You walk down the hall, what do you say? Hey, brother. Hey, sister. But see, that's why it's important 
for us to look at the whole of Scripture, and there's more other places that describe this, the whole of Scripture shows us it was his uncle who became king. He's described as a brother in this passage, but that's not a literal brother because the Scripture shows us it was his uncle who became the king. All right. Now, before we dig any deeper into the lament, we have to do a Bible study tonight. I'm going to ask you a question. How do we know that the second part of the lament refers to Jehoiachin and not Jehoiakim? Remember, there was Jehoahaz. It's obvious that it's referring to him because he was taken to Egypt, just like the prophecy said. Actually, it wasn't even a prophecy because lament was written after it already happened. Jehoiakim becomes king for 11 years. And as I'm about to show you in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, it appears that Jehoiachin's taken to Babylon too. So why couldn't this lament refer to Jehoiakim, the guy after Jehoahaz, and not Jehoiachin? So look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and look at verses 5 through 8. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 5 through 8 says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. So it reads like Jehoiakim is taken to Babylon as well, correct? So how do we know that this lament in Ezekiel 19 is referring to Jehoiachin and not Jehoiakim? Now the answer to that question is there's a lot of reasons why. But they'll only come out as we take the time to wrestle with these types of things. Folks, God doesn't mind if you look under his bed. By the way, if you come to our house, don't look under our bed. God doesn't mind if you dig in his closets. If you come to our house, don't open the first closet door as you come in to the left. The vacuum cleaner's in there, and I found out last night when I was looking for a pair of goggles to do some work in the bottom of the pool, there are more plastic bags there. I think we're saving for some kind of a famine of plastic bags. It overtook me. God doesn't mind us digging. You know, he's got nothing to hide. The scriptures, everything we need is here. God's word is sufficient. So what we're going to do is we're going to deal with this issue. So in order to find out whether or not it should refer to Jehoiakim instead of Jehoiachin, we need to find out some more information about Jehoiakim, shouldn't we? Because all we had is just this one little passage. It sure reads like he was taken to Babylon, doesn't it? He was bound in chains to be taken to Babylon. Sure sounds like he had been taken to Babylon, but you're going to find out as you do a little digging, Jehoiakim never went to Babylon. Oh, it reads like he did here, but look closely at that first word there in verse 5. Against him, or first word in this, I'm going to pull out to you here. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Does the passage ever say he actually made it to Babylon? No, we know that the scripture tells us that Jehoiachin was taken to Babylon and he definitely was carried to Babylon. All this says is that he was taken in chains to be taken to Babylon. But go with me to Jeremiah chapter 22, because actually, as you've hopefully probably begun to notice, as we've been doing the study of Ezekiel, we can't do a study of Ezekiel with also at the, uh, at the same time doing a study of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah has been prophesying a, along the same time period and much of the stuff that God's been saying through Ezekiel to the captives in Babylon, he's been saying through Jeremiah to the people who are still left in Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, let me read to you verses 11 through 30, and you're going to find a very similar prophet type prophecy about these kings. Jeremiah 22, verse 11. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah. By the way, who was the son of Josiah? Jehoahaz is also called Shalom. So the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and he went away from this place. He shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die, and he shall never see this land again. By the way, that was, he was taken to Egypt. He then goes and says, Woe to him who build his house by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house, 
with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion? Do you think you're a king because you complete, compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is, it, is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and a heart only for your own dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. So this first part of this is against Jehoahaz. And as we know from Ezekiel 19 and also 2 Kings chapter 25 and others, uh, 20, sorry, 23 and others, he was taken by Pharaoh Necho to, to Egypt. Look at verse 18, though. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out, for a barum, cry out from a barum, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. O inhabitant of Lebanon, nested among the cedars, how will you be pitied when pangs come upon you, pains of a woman, in, as of a woman in labor. So now this is being said about Jehoiakim, the next one in line who was there in, in Israel. And don't miss that. They said two times, they shall not lament for him. Put a finger here in Jeremiah. Go back to Ezekiel 19. You're to take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. But Jeremiah had already spoken by the word of God that there will be no lament for Jehoiakim. Did you catch it? So they can't be lamenting for Jehoiakim in Ezekiel 19, first off, because the scripture said there will be no lament for Jehoiakim. And on top of that, look at verse 19 again. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. By the way, when they were done with a donkey, did they hold a burial for the donkey, a ceremony? No, they would typically lay it on the side of the road and just let it rot. And that's actually what happened to him. He had been captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and put in chains to be taken to Babylon, but he never made it to Babylon because his body was dumped out there on the side of the road. Which means the lament in Ezekiel 19 can't be for Jehoiakim, because the lament for that one, that person was taken to Babylon and lived the rest of their life in Babylon. Let me show you a couple more things, though, here. There's some more clues here. Look at Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 27 through 32. Jeremiah 36, starting in verse 27. It says, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation. Let me catch up to what's been going on. Jehoiakim is the king we're referring to here. Jeremiah has been given a prophecy by God, and he has his servant, Baruch, his, the big word is amenuensis, write it down. He tells him, look, I want you to write down everything that I want, God wants me to say. You write it down and go read it. So he goes and he reads it to the leaders there in Israel at the time in Jerusalem. And they actually are afraid, and they take seriously the word of God from Jeremiah through Baruch as he's reading it. They said, we've got to take this to the king. They go and they read it before the king, and the king and his officials are not fearful. And as they're reading it, he takes pieces of it after they've read it, cuts it up and throws it into the fire as they're reading it. He just starts burning it on the, uh, in the fire as he goes. So now in chapter 36, verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch at, that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. Did you get, see, it's Jehoiakim, the king of Judah had burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land? 
and will cut off from it man and beast. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jeremiah king of Judah had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added now to it. This new, this new scroll has got some more stuff now because of what he had done by burning the last one. But look at what God said through Jeremiah. Because you took the word of God and ignored it and burnt it up, what's going to happen to his body? Look at verse 30. Your dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. What did we see earlier in chapter 22 in the prophecy of Jeremiah? They're going to bury him by the wayside like they do a donkey. So folks, when you see, when you put it all together, Ezekiel 19 is lamenting for whoever this king is. The scripture said there'll be no lament for Jehoiachin. The one that Ezekiel 19 is referring to, the second cub, was carried to Babylon. Jehoiakim never made it to Babylon. He was put in chains to be taken to Babylon, but the scripture shows us as we look at the whole of scripture that he never made it to Babylon after being taken captive. Who knows, he might have died right there in the process and they just threw his body on the side of the road. Yes, ma'am. So are you saying no lamenting for either one of them? No, no lamenting for Jehoiakim. There's lament for Jehoahaz. There's a lament for, as you're about to see, Jehoiachin, but the king that was between them, there's no lament for him, the scripture said. So that can't be a lament in Ezekiel 19. And on top of that, he never made it to Babylon like the one in Ezekiel 19 does. Well, there's also one more clue in here, but I'll show it to you after we read the rest of Jeremiah 22's prophecy. Yes, we're going to talk about the curse on the bloodline in a little bit. We won't get into the full detail, unfortunately. We don't have time to get into that with the more we have to look at. But as Sheila was just referring to, uh, there's a curse on the bloodline of Jehoiakim. And because of that, a descendant of Joseph couldn't be the king. If you do a study of Joseph's lineage, he comes from Jehoiakim. And God put a curse on his descendants that none of his descendants will ever sit on the throne of the king of David. And if Jesus had come from Joseph... He couldn't be the king because the curse would extend to him. Oh, but guess what? That's why the Bible also shows us that Jesus' lineage was not only through Joseph, but also through Mary. And oh, by the way, he was born to Mary. And he is able to sit on the throne because he didn't come. He came through Mary's lineage and he didn't come through Jehoiakim or she didn't come through Jehoiakim. But look at Jeremiah 22 again and look at verses 24 through 30. Now there's the speaking about Jehoiachin. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, that's the son of Jehoiakim, that's Jehoiachin, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you're afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die but to the land to which they will long to return, they shall, there they shall, no long, shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Again. We see that curse, none of his descendants, and that's from Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin, carried on down. None of their descendants will sit on the throne of David. And that's why it's so cool and awesome that if you understand the whole of Scripture, Jesus had to be born of Mary. Joseph did not give birth to Jesus. He just happened to be the father, but he had union with Mary after she had already given birth to Jesus. Who was Jesus' father? God. And therefore, he's able to sit on the throne. He avoids the curse of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. But there's still something cool here. Back in Ezekiel chapter 19, and we'll see if anybody caught it now. In Ezekiel 19, in verse 3 and verse 5, we see each of these kings referred to in a certain way. In verse 3, 
And she, this is the nation of Israel, the lioness, brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. Look at verse 5. When she saw that she waited in vain for the one that had been taken to Egypt, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs, and he made him a young lion. And he prowled among the lions. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. Has anybody caught why they're each described as young lions? Oh, well, they both lived to an old age, but not as kings. You're close. How long did each one actually reign as king? They never even got to be an older lion as king. They each only reigned three months. So when you put the whole of this together, now all of a sudden Ezekiel 19 is pretty clear. The lament is for the first one, Jehoahaz, who was taken to Egypt. The next lament is for not Jehoiakim, but Jehoiachin, who was only three months in his kingship, but he was taken to Babylon. Do you see it? That's why, folks, I want to be used to God, hopefully, to burn us into your brains. you got to study the Word of God. There are too many people out there today that are just taking a verse here and a verse there and building doctrines that sure make sense, and they got a verse that proves it. But when you use the whole of Scripture, then you realize that can't be true. That can't be true because the whole of Scripture together will never contradict itself. This is what it's really saying. And you've got to build your doctrine from the whole of that. And that's part of my job, to help you see these things. So... In verses 10 through 14, go back to Ezekiel 19. In verses 10 through 14 of Ezekiel 19, we see Israel now depicted as a vine in a vineyard and no longer a lioness. The, the picture now changes. The word picture or the symbol, symbolism changes a little bit here. Now, we've already dug deep into the word, this word picture of the vine. Remember, if you, if you don't remember, go back to the website and refer to the study on Ezekiel chapter 17 where we dug into all the places that described Israel as a vine and a vineyard and all that. We did that whole full study in Ezekiel 17. So go back to the website and look at that. But hopefully you understand that he's referring to Israel. Your, verse 10, your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became ruler's scepters. So its strong stems became what? Kings. Very good. Its strong stems became rulers, scepters. So the strong stems of this vineyard became kings. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and it withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. So now it's referring to one strong stem, which means one king. Fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots and has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, in other words, no ruler, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation, has become a lam has, has a lamentation has become a lamentation. Don't miss this, folks. You may not have realized it, but who became there was Jehoahaz. Then after Jehoahaz was who? Jehoiakim. After Jehoiakim was Jehoiachin, and who was put in authority after Jehoiachin? Zedekiah. And most people may not realize it, but Zedekiah is being referred to here in verse 12. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Again, everything we need to know has already been given to us in the Word of God. Go with me to um, Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah 38, verses 17 through 23. Jeremiah 38, starting in verse 17. <clears throat> then Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. All right. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given over to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what, you say, what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision of which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house 
in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire." What does he keep saying over and over and over? If you do what God says to do, Zedekiah, things haven't been going real well, and God's given the authority of Israel right now into the hands of the Babylonians. And I'm telling you, God says, submit yourself to him, and it'll be well with you. Be a vassal of the king of Babylon, because right now you're being disciplined, and you need to just humble yourself in the discipline of the Lord. When it's time, he'll bring you out of it. But Zedekiah did not humble himself. He, even though we looked at before, he made a vow, and he had promised by his God that he would submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And what did he do? He took the name of the Lord in vain, as we looked at. He did not keep the vow. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the city and burns it with fire. But he had been warned over and over and over, if you don't, it's going to be burned with fire. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. <clears throat> Stick with me because it's about to get really fun. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 21. It says, When Zedekiah was 21 years old, sorry, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by his God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against, the, against uh, turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests of the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made in holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising the words and scoffing at its prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against this people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasure of the house of the Lord, and the treasure of the king of his princes, and all these he brought to Babylon. And he burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became his servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years." So everything God said he was going to do, he did. So back in Ezekiel chapter 19, when it talks about how there were many stems or rulers or kings there of the vine, there was one that fire consumed him. And after him, after that fire consumed that one stem, verse 13, Now it's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots has consumed its fruit so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. Now keep in mind, Zedekiah was the last king who ever reigned in Jerusalem. Do you, maybe you don't know this, but even though after the 70 years were over and God began to allow them to go back into the land, there was no king. There were governors, but there was never a king again. And for over 2,600 years, there has been no king in Israel. Oh, but here's where it gets good. Yes, well, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We've just celebrated Palm Sunday. I, as I was doing this study, it, it get, I got so excited, I thought... What a perfect, perfect tie to what just happened last Sunday. We've just celebrated Palm Sunday, and it'll be helpful for us to be reminded that Israel has had no king of David, uh, so of David's line, to sit on his throne for now over 2,600 years. Jesus, the descendant of David, the promised king, did come to Jerusalem, but they rejected him and chose Caesar. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. Look at verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. By the way, if this is a donkey in which no one has ever ridden, what's it going to do when someone gets on it? But this one does not buck. Isn't that amazing? Oh, but keep reading here. As they read along, they spread their cloaks on the road. He's drawing near already in the way to Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love the fact that the Bible says that if I don't tell people, they're still going to hear. Don't think for a second that God needs you or me to get the message to the whole world. He's big enough to get it done. Now we're going to miss out on a whole lot of reward and a whole lot of fun if we don't let God use us. But don't think for a second that if you don't tell them, they may never hear. Your God's way bigger than that. And when he drew near, when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, don't miss this, folks, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon it, upon another in it, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Does this not sound a little familiar? That this God says, because you've rejected what I've offered, your city's going to be surrounded and destroyed and leveled to the ground again? They praised him as king, though, didn't they? Now, we don't, Zechariah 9, 9, you all know. The prophecy said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, if not, go look at it later on. It says, Behold, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, the foal or the colt of a donkey. The prophecy even said that the king would come riding on a donkey. And they actually declared him to be king. They praised him as the king. Now, some of you may not know this. So I'm going to take you back to 2 Kings chapter 9. The laying their coats down isn't just some nice thing they did. Go to 2 Kings chapter 9. It says, Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead, and when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Don't linger. I love this. He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to find him with his buddies. You get him from his, separate from his buddies, take him into an inner chamber, and you take this flask of oil, you pour it on his head, and you say, thus says the Lord, you're the next king of Israel. You're the king of Israel. And once you do that, bust your fanny. Get out of there. Open the door and just run. That, that, I would love to preach like that half the time. Just say what I got to say, and I don't have to stick around. Just go. That'd be awesome. Because sometimes I got to say stuff that I don't want to stick around to see how they re respond to it. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the commander of the army were in council. Commanders of the army were in council, and he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which? Of us, of, of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went to the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that, you may, that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, 
and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel, and I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Again, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then he opened the door and he fled. Now when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, Well, you know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So when the people were taking off their coats and laying them down underneath the feet of the donkey that Jesus was riding on, what were they saying? You're king. So the people are all screaming and shouting and praising. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118. And they're saying, Hosanna, save now. The king is coming. The king's here. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he weeps. He says, oh, if only you knew. If only you knew what would bring you peace. But now it's going to be hidden from your eyes. Why did Jesus weep? Listen closely, folks, because we need to hear this. Because he knew even though they claimed that he was king, he was not the kind of king they were expecting. And because of that, they were going to, within just a few days, change their mind. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 18. Let me just tell you right now that we live in a day in which many people in the world say that Jesus is their Lord. But Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 21 said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we in your name cast out demons? In your name prophesy, and I'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Listen to me, folks. You talk to many people around the world, they'll call themselves Christians. They'll call themselves followers of Jesus. But their definition is they're believing in a Jesus that lets their sin be okay. There are plenty of churches today that are saying, well, certain things are no longer sin. God's okay with that. And they say Jesus is their Lord, but it's not the real Jesus. They turn their back on the real Jesus. They're believing in the king that they have created. In John chapter 18, look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. I love how the fact they don't answer. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. By the way, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. By the way, the only ones that were crucifying were the Romans. If they had put him to death, he would have been stoned to death if the Jews were allowed to put him to death because they would stone people to death. But Jesus himself in the prophecies had said that he would be crucified. And the fact that he had to be killed by the Romans, who were the only ones doing the crucifixion, was to fulfill the prophecy that that's how he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you, did you, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him what everybody's saying today, what's truth? There's no such thing as truth. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in, purple, in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
and struck him with their hands, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. In other words, he said, let's just give him a bad whooping. Let's give him a severe beating, and that'll make everybody happy that we beat him. Because Pilate does not want to crucify him. He doesn't see any reason why the man should be put to death. And he's actually a little bit afraid of the guy because he realized there's something about him that he can't put his finger on. And if you don't know, the scriptures show us that his wife had already come to him and said, Look, I had this dream last night, and in the dream, don't do anything with this guy. But Pilate's doing everything in his power to get out of this, and so he has him beaten and mocked. So he brings him out, bloody, and wearing the robe and the crown of thorns, and he's figuring, oh, that'll make him happy that we mocked and humiliated him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him and yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, before I read any further, I've got to help you out with something that many of you may not know. See, a lot of us over the years, and I was the same way, if we read just from the scriptures and we don't understand the historical background, you may think that Pilate's kind of wishy-washy. But actually, Pilate was not a wishy-washy leader. See, when the previous rulers in Rome had come in, the Jews had these rules from God about no graven images, correct? And if you remember, when the Romans would have their parades on top of their poles, they'd have these images, they carved images of different things. And the Jews would ask them, would you please take those off? Those offend us because we've been taught not to have any graven images. And the other previous rulers of Rome would remove them in respect to the Jews. When Pilate became king, and you can double check this and look at the research and the history, when Pilate became king, he put him back on and says, I don't care. And he was such a jerk. He was such a harsh ruler that actually the Jews went over his head to Caesar at one point and complained. Caesar contacts Pilate and says, if you can't handle those people, you won't be in charge there anymore. You got one more chance. So when the people said here, if you don't kill him, you're no friend of Caesar, what they were hinting at was, we'll go over your head again. And so what does he do? He protects his own backside. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Yes, it's been over 2,600 years since there's been a king of David's lineage to rule on the throne in Israel. But the prophesied king did come. And what did they do? They rejected him and they killed him. But folks, stick with me here because many people thought, man, if they would just received him as king, the millennial kingdom could have begun and everything would have been wonderful. No, 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 no. If Jesus had become the king they wanted him to be, he would have never gone to the cross. And if he never went to the cross, where would we be? Where would they be? Done. In sin. Nothing, no one to cover. He had to die. He had to die. This was a fulfillment. He knew this was going to happen. He offered it to him. And there were those who did believe. The, the disciples and many others who did believe. They didn't understand. But they knew there's something about him. And the prophecies seemed to be pointing to him. And uh, we're not really sure that he's the guy anymore. Because he rose from the dead, they say. But some of our women have amazed us. And, and they say that they saw angels and he was alive. And, and, and some of our guys went and checked in the tomb. And they couldn't find him. Remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? But Jesus meets back up with them after he rose from the dead. And says, hey, I know you're a little confused right now. I know you're a little scared and don't understand. But come on back. 
Come on back. I'm going to finish everything that I'm doing. They had enough faith that they were sticking around. And God did save many who believed in who he was, even though they didn't fully understand it. But all along, the scriptures have been saying that there's never going to be another king in Israel until Jesus comes back. I'm going to read to you as we close tonight three passages of scripture. I'm going to do it fast, so you might want to write them down, because you may not be able to keep up with me. Zechariah chapter 9, we've already read, but I'm going to read it to you again, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he did. He came the first time to bring salvation through his death and his resurrection and his sinless life. But look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's this one coming who's going to rule, and he's going to rule over the whole world, and there's going to be peace centered out of Jerusalem. And we know that it's Jesus. The one that came the first time to be the suffering servant and to die for the sins of the world is coming back. He's coming back. Folks, has this prophecy been fulfilled? Even though Israel's back in their land, are they at peace? No. They won't be until Jesus himself comes back. Micah chapter 5. A lot of us know Micah chapter 5 from Christmas time, but let's just keep reading. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Did that happen? They beat him and they punched him and they hit him with sticks when they were mocking him that time when they put the crown of thorns on him in the robe. But you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he, this ruler that's to come, will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus, in Matthew 24, when he starts, he's asked about his return in the end of the age, and he starts describing the tribulation period. Matthew 24 is not talking about the end of the, the, the church age. Matthew 24, he's beginning the tribulation period. The church age has already come to a close. The rapture has already happened. And he says there's going to be antichrists. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be pestilences, famine, death. Folks, that's the first seals. He opened the first seal and the Antichrist comes out. The second seal is the red horse in the war. The next horse is famine and so on. Jesus is describing the tribulation period. And he says these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Not of birth pains. He said these are the beginning of the birth pains. Don't miss that. Because when he says these are the beginning of the birth pains, he has to be referring to a set of birth pains that has already previously been spoken of. Here they are. And he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. He's going to give them up until the end of the birth pains, the end of the tribulation period. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, this ruler, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Folks, it's been there all along. The scriptures have been talking. There's an individual who's going to bring salvation. He had to die first, and he was going to rise from the dead, as the prophecy said in Isaiah 53. And he came and he did that, and he went to the Father. And now we're in this grace time period where he's saving Gentiles just to make Israel jealous. But Israel is now back in the land, which means that all the stuff that the Bible said was going to happen in the last days, right before his return, is all ready to be put into place. The church age is about to come to a close, and he's going to take us to be with him, and he'll finish that last seven-year period with Israel. And what are the signs of his coming in the end of the age? the seals of revelation. And when the birth pains are over and she has given birth, he's gone through that trial period, that's when he's going to come back. That's when he's going to come back. People say, oh, this, all these earthquakes that are happening, these are the birth pains. No. The birth pains that Jesus referred to are in the tribulation period. Yeah, there's a lot of earthquakes going on, but we haven't even begun to even see what's going to happen according to the scriptures. Let me close with Micah chapter 9. Sorry, not Micah, Isaiah. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6. 
For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Oh, look at closely. He's going to be called Mighty God. That means Jesus has to be God. It's not just a man. It's not just a great teacher. Prophecy said he would be God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And, oh, I love this, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember how we looked at how these shoots were the scepters, the rulers, the kings, but there's no more? Well, but there's going to come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meat of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Remember when Jesus was on the earth, and this guy yells out and tells, says, Jesus, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. And Jesus said, who made me judge between you? In other words, that's not my role right now. But when he comes back, he will. He's going to be the judge. So all this stuff that we're looking at and reading in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that just keeps looking like it's, why do we keep reading about Babylonian captivity and burning and judging Israel? Folks, are you starting to see it now? There's been little pictures and hints of what was to come to the nation of Israel again when they rejected the prophesied king, which then point to his return. There's only one way there's going to be peace in the world, and there's only way there's going to be peace on the earth, and there's only one way there's going to be peace in the Middle East. And that's when Jesus himself comes back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.